Let's go now to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Chris and I have been marching through the book of Romans for some time, and we've taken a break because of Palm Sunday and Easter, and this morning we are going to go to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, and we're going to march through this together um, as we have started doing and going to try to fine-tune this and continue to bring the Word to you as a team um, regularly and, and, and often. So let's look now at Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Continue to the needs of the saints, or contribute, excuse me, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you loved us not in spite of our sin, but you loved us unto our sin. You did not treat us as our sins deserve, but you gave your only Son that He might become a living sacrifice for us. And that His actions and this Gospel might be the very thing that changes us to the depth of who we are. Well, Jesus, I am sick and tired of the church being some cultural institution. I am sick and tired of religion. (laughs) I'm sick and tired of positive thinking and positive living and thinking that our greatest need is financial or physical. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need to be shaken to the depth of the core of who we are. We need to see the reality of our sin and we need to see the dreadfulness of our sin and we need to fall on our face before You grieving our sin and yet rejoicing, dancing with delight because of Jesus the Christ. And we need to leave the Gospel every second of every minute of every day, extending the same grace that's been extended to us, to others. That the world might know that we, the church, might be a change agent in this dark world. So Jesus, would you come by your Spirit and give me and give Chris clarity 
Oh, Father, would You speak through us this morning? Would You speak to us this morning? We stand with this body as sinners, and yet sinners saved by grace. And we stand with this body in need of You to come do something bigger and better than what You've done before in us. And so, God, would You come by Your Spirit and apply the Gospel to this body that we might be different and that we might be a city on a hill and that our neighbors might know You, that our enemies might know You. And Lord Jesus, You might receive glory and fame in Memphis and so far beyond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I brought up Dr. Perkins last week, um, but I just want to tell you that, that I just can't get over this man. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, with him again. I've seen him many times. He is uh, in his 80s. He's an African-American man who grew up in New Hebron, Mississippi, and uh, then Mendenhall, Mississippi. He's a man who has given his life for racial reconciliation. And maybe it's the fact that he's still alive. Maybe it's the fact that you can go up and talk to him, uh, that you can hear him speak, and you can sit down with him. But whatever it is, his life has had a huge impact on me, and I want to bring it back to you this morning. You see, this man has committed his life to racial reconciliation, not because it is some social agenda, but because it is a gospel agenda in his life. For him to live as he has lived, giving his life to see white people and black people come together under the the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ has cost this man. Because when he was just seven weeks old, his mother, who could not afford to feed her children and her family and herself because they were sharecroppers in New Hebron, Mississippi, that woman starved to death (laughs) and no one cared. And then later in life, Dr. Perkins saw his brother Clyde, who was a World War II veteran, come back from the war fighting for this country. And because they were in town on a Saturday afternoon and he made a little bit too much noise, his voice was a little raised, he was laughing a little bit too loud, it caught the attention of the policeman in New Hebron and he came and he hit him with the stick and the next blow, Clyde just instinctively reached up to protect it and he grabbed the stick to just protect himself and the policeman took two steps back and shot him. And John Perkins held his brother in the back of a car as they rushed an hour and a half to the hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, only to watch the life fall from his brother and him die in the back seat. And then in 1970, John Perkins would be arrested himself and taken to a prison in Brandon, Mississippi. And he would be tortured and he would be beaten for hours. And it's described in his autobiography, Let Justice Roll Down, which I highly recommend you read. And yet, he tells the story that in that that jail cell and in the bed for, for many days and weeks after, God came to him and broke him and literally allowed all of the hate and all of the bitterness to fall away, and he could look at at white people in a different light. He could begin to pity those that tortured him. He could begin to love them, and he could begin to want his oppressors 
to be freed from enslavement to whatever was holding them, the evil that was holding them that made them do what they did to him and others. And he gave his life for that. Paul has spent 11 chapters detailing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1.16, he said, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And he begins to detail in chapter 3 how much we need that gospel because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no unrighteous, no, not even one. Therefore, he tells us that the law is in place not that to, to serve as a ladder that we might climb up it so that God, once we get closer to the top, might look down and go, okay, now I love you. But the power of the law is simply to bring conviction because if we're honest before the law, we know that we are sinners and we have not obeyed the law. And so the law convicts us of sin, and yet, but now we saw in Romans 3.23, now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. And this is a righteousness that comes through faith in the finished work of Jesus. And so now men, sinful men, and God can be reconciled to one another through the finished work of Christ, simply by believing, saying, I give up all my good deeds and all my efforts, my religious efforts to get to you, and I accept what you have done for me. And what Paul is telling us as he details that chapter after chapter, being united with Christ, realizing that this plan was before the foundation of the world, that he loved you specifically, he came for you, his, his people. Way before we ever were born, way before the foundations of the earth, that this love goes eternally. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, listen to me, if you understand everything I've been saying for 11 chapters, therefore now offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Unbelievable. And then he comes here and he says, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. See, what kind of change does the grace of Jesus Christ bring to us? It brings a radical change in our community and in our posture toward our enemies. In our community and our posture toward one another. In our community and our posture toward the world. You see, Romans 5 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is saying, if you understand that, then you will move out and as a, 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 a community of people that are willing and ready to forgive because God has forgiven them. That the tactic of the church will be found in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with power. No. Overcome evil with your education. No. But overcome evil with good. That's radical. And I want us to see how radical, and Paul wants us to see how radical. And Chris is going to come now and begin that process. Paul is working to transition us, as, as Richard mentioned. Beginning of chapter 12, he begins to transition us from what we ought to know to how we ought to live. 
And Richard mentioned it. He said we ought to be a living sacrifice. And then he continues on in our passage here this morning on how we ought to live. And he gets extremely practical. One of Paul's primary messages here is that the gospel causes us to rightly love those around us. The gospel causes us to rightly love those around us. Look at verse 12 with me. First words out of Paul's mouth in our passage is, Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Paul is speaking to showing an affection and esteem without, get this, without acting. Without acting. And the idea of being genuine is derived from an actor on a stage playing as a character. And Paul is saying the love you ought to show the person uh, that is next to you is a love that is real. A love that's not acting. And all that is to follow in this text is Paul describing what real Christian love really looks like. That's what he's going to show us. And here in this first few verses, Paul is speaking of those inside the church. He's talking about those inside the church. And he'll talk about those outside the church in a bit. But right now he's talking about folk that are sitting right next to you. Other believers. Those inside of the church. How do we know this? Paul, a few times in our passage, uses this phrase, one another, one another, one another. He says, love one another with brotherly affection in verse 10. And he continues in verse 10 in that same way. Outdo one another in showing honor. In essence, what Paul is saying is that the mark of a person that understands that their sin has been yielded to the work of Christ is that they are concerned more with others than they are with themselves. They are concerned more with what's happening with other people than they are with what's happening in their personal lives. In fact, Paul sticks us uh, with this theme when he says in Galatians 5 and verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Fruit of the Spirit is love. Even in John 13, 34 through 35, let me read this for you. Jesus says, A new covenant, a new, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul saying in both cases, the way that you can identify the Holy Spirit is on the inside of you. And the way that I know that you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb is by your love for other folk. That's how we know. That's an identifier that you are a genuine believer of Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 11 with this idea. He says, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. And we don't have much time to deal with this. But in a sense, what he's saying is, don't be lazy and be enthusiastic about life. So many Christians walk around with their heads down. Paul says, be enthusiastic enthusiastic about things. Why? Because if you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have something to be excited about. Because He is not holding you to the sin of your past, your present, or your future. You have something to be enthusiastic about. Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 11, serve the Lord. Then in verse 12, notice this, he says, be constant in prayer. And I want to draw your attention to this important thing that Paul is pointing us to, and it's this, the dependence on the Lord. 
Paul says, serve the Lord, which means be controlled by Him, be subject to Him, obey and be a slave to the Lord. And the idea of the, there of being constant prayer is to persist in prayer and to be devoted to prayer. What are you saying, Chris? I'm saying the only way that you and I will love like Christ is calling us to love is if we depend on the Lord. If we are tethered to Him in a deep way. If we're resting in the Spirit. That's the only way that we can expect to love people the way that Christ is calling us to love them. I want you to hear, we cannot do this on our own. Look at verse 13 with me. It says this, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The implication there is that in the same body, get this, there are haves and have-nots. How, uh, how else could Paul say, contribute to those that have need if there aren't people around you that have need? And I love this because Paul is showing us that the church ought to be a place that is conducive for the half and the half-nots. Folk that have a little bit and folk that have much ought to be in worship with one another. And Paul is not saying, oh, the people who don't have as much, you you gather over here in this space, and the people who have plenty, you gather over here in your own little country club. Paul says here that what we see is in the community of faith, we all ought to be together. We all ought to be in one body with one another. The Roman church was a socioeconomically diverse church. And that's what we see Paul pointing to here in this text. Oftentimes, the first thing we do is we clench our fist. What Paul is calling, calling us to is to unclench our fist because the things that we possess don't belong to us anyway. But what, what, what are you saying? I, I, I worked hard for this. I earned this. This is my property and this is my money. This is my real estate. Uh, Paul says, no, no. It all belongs to the Lord. And you ought to freely give how God has freely given to you. That's what he's calling us to. Paul turns this idea of my stuff and clenching your fist. He turns that idea on his head and reminds the church that those that are committed to Jesus see a need and they contribute. They see a need and they do something about it. What does that mean? It means that the believers see a need in the other believer's life and they help. And, and they don't just say, you know, let me pray for you about that. Come on, let, let, let's, let's pray about this. They see a need and they meet it. They actually meet it. What this means is that there ought to be some change in our worlds. There ought to be some change at our dinner tables. Our children's relationships ought to be changing. We ought to be looking for ways to bless other people. And I want you to know that you cannot love one another with brotherly affection and you cannot outdo one another in showing honor or contribute to the needs of others. You cannot do all of these things. You can't show hospitality like Jesus is asking of us to show hospitality here in the text if you don't know one another. You gotta know people. So what what does that mean? It means coming to Sunday morning worship is not enough. 
It means that coming into worship and sitting down and enjoying corporate worship and corporate prayer and sitting under the preaching of the word. And as soon as the benediction hits, you dart for the hills. What Paul is saying is, no. Because he's calling us to love one another with brotherly affection. He's calling us to outdo one another in honor. He's calling us to do all of these things. How in the world can we do this if we don't know the people next to us? He's challenging us this morning. Paul is getting all up in our mix. Making us a bit uncomfortable. Uh, A couple of months ago, I was driving on uh, Highway 40. I'm driving on Highway 40, and all of a sudden, my pedal uh, gets a bit uh, tight. And it's, it's, it's not as, you know, it gets a bit tighter, and, you know, all of a sudden, my wheel gets a bit tense. And I, I was going 70 miles an hour. All of a sudden, my speed is dropping drastically. Uh, I'm in the middle lane on Highway 40, and my car is dying on me. And so I'm quickly making my way to the shoulder as my wheel is tightening up, as my car is kind of coming to a screeching halt, uh, and I realize it hits me that I'm out of gas. I am out of gas. Yeah. Don't act like it's never happening. Some of y'all are saying it hasn't. <laughs> I'm out of gas. I can't believe this. Let me give you the backstory. Um, my gas hand is broken, and it... Sometimes it's deceptive, right? So sometimes it tells me I have a half a tank of gas when I really don't. And I try to remember when, you know, the light flashes and then the light will go off. And I'll remember, you know, yeah, I I need some gas. And then I'll just keep driving. And all of a sudden my wheel is tighter. (laughs) So here I am on the side of the road. It's about 8 o'clock at night. Nowhere to go. Um, so I call a couple friends and nobody is answering the phone and I'm sitting there. I'm like, Lord, help me. I'm on Highway 40. A black man on Highway 40, stranded. Um, and all of a sudden, this truck, 10 minutes later, pulls up. This old beat up truck, small little Toyota pickup truck. And out jumps this Latino guy. And he comes over to my passenger window, and I don't know him like that, so I just crack it, you know. I, yeah, I just crack the window. I'm like, hey. Um, so he's like, man, do you need any help? I'm like, yeah, I got somebody coming. Uh, you know, I just need some gas. And he's like, well, actually, I got a tank of, I, I got a, a, a carton of gas. I mean, a gallon of gas on the back of my truck, and you can have it if you want to. I'm like, dude, I, I don't have any cash on me. I, you know, he's like, man, it's yours if you want it. And then I let the window down. I'm like, so you mean I gotta pay you nothing? <laughs> So I get out of the car, and this guy is incredibly generous. He literally puts the gas in for me. He doesn't want me to touch a thing. And I'm just thanking him over and over again. Um, and he says, he says these words, don't thank me, thank the God of Moses. You know, I, I know I'm a Presbyterian pastor, but I almost shouted right there. Yeah, I, you know, I'm like, Lord, thank you. He says, don't thank me. Thank the God of Moses. God gets the glory. God gets the honor out of this. This isn't me. And that's what Paul is pulling us to. 
And the reality is, that man had to make himself uncomfortable to stop at 8 o'clock at night to see if somebody with dark tinted windows needed help. He, he, he needed to make himself uncomfortable. And that's what Paul is calling us to in his text. He's saying, I am challenging you to make yourself uncomfortable, to outdo one another in honor. I'm call- your brothers and sisters in the faith, those that you are to love, I'm challenging you, I'm calling you to love them. And so loving them, you open your calendars. You open your pocketbooks. You, you so love them by unclenching your fist. And you get into their worlds. Chris, all I can think about when you're telling that story is thank God you didn't call me at 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> Man, that's bad, isn't it? I wish I were joking. Uh, <laughs> I thank God for that man that stopped. Um, man. Well, then secondly, uh, we need to go to the verses 14 through 18 and see that the gospel motivates a radical self-forgetting love. A radical self-forgetting love. Um, last week at the Kynos Conference, we honored Dr. Perkins with uh, the inaugural John Perkins Legacy Award. And there were, it was at the Cannon Center. There were 1,700 people there. He received a long standing ovation. And, um, and as I sat there and I looked at this multi-ethnic crowd standing and applauding for him, and I thought, here is a man who, one of the lowest points, if not the lowest point in his life, was lying in his own blood in a jail cell in Brandon, Mississippi with the state um, deputy sheriff and the state trooper having beaten him down. And here he is years later receiving this award as well as uh, having ten... He has a third grade education, but he has ten honorary doctorates. Mm. He's written numerous books. And all I can do is stand there and go, why? And Paul tells us, because by God's grace, and I mean that, and he would admit that, by God's grace, this man has become the epitome of these verses. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. Don't remove yourself. All right, I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to seek revenge. Bless is an action verb. Bless. That's crazy. This is insanity. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. He says it again. Okay, okay, you didn't get me. Bless and do not curse, church. But man, you don't know what they did, Paul. Bless and do not curse, church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Get deep into their pain. Forget about your own. Man, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do you want to know why that man was recognized? Do you want to know why that man has ten honorary doctorates? It's because he blessed his enemies. 
You see, seeking revenge is more self-satisfying. It is. If you've ever hit somebody out of anger, you've got to admit it felt good in the moment. If you've ever gotten somebody back and maybe they didn't even know you were the one that got them back, it feels a little satisfying. But it doesn't change the other person and it harms you. You see, the power of this gospel, the, the power of what we're, we're looking at here is, is that forgiveness, not seeking revenge, blessing your enemy is power to change others. It is more effective. Proof in point is, can anybody tell me where the Museum of Black Power is? There's not one that I could find on the Google, at least, on the Internet. There's not one. And yet, where's the National Civil Rights Museum? And how do they just raise $45 million to renovate the place? Because love and forgiveness and reconciliation changes a country and a people. And God says, church, would you trust me? You see, in order to forgive, in order to bless our enemies, in order not to just not seek revenge, but to bless somebody that's hurt us and betrayed us and used us that we naturally want to hate, in order to do that, we've got to take ourselves out of control. And we've got to let God be God, and we don't like that. You see, to seek condemnation as opposed to reconciliation is to keep myself and my needs and what I want right here in the center. But to seek reconciliation and blessing is to say, I'm nothing, I don't deserve anything, God deserves much glory, not me. And so I shrink back, God gets the glory. And hate can only last so long. Especially in the face of love. It changes others, but it also changes us. You see, bitterness and hate simply makes you a bitter and hateful person. It shrinks you. It hurts you. Now, that's always driven me crazy because that's not the only motivation to not hate somebody. That just sounds selfish. You know, bitterness, you know, works on you, so don't hate everybody. Uh, well, you're just self-serving if you... No. Here's the reality. If you are bitter and hateful towards somebody, you will become a bitter and hateful person. You will become small. You will not become godlike. You will not, you will not know God in the way that He should be known. Why? Because God is love. And so if you were holding on to hate, if you were holding on to revenge, if you're holding on to that bitterness, then you are not walking in godliness and you are not drawing near to God. Because God is love. So you've got to deal with that. And so where do you deal with it? You deal with it at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross was, is the gospel. It's the very centrality of the gospel. The cross is, is God's coming out party. He said, you want to know what I'm like? This is what I'm like. While they were still sinners, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you get that, that you were a raging lunatic against God, that you hated God, that you wanted God to serve you, and yet He sent His Son to die for you, and that that was the methodology that He used to win you. Do you understand that He could manifest Himself in this room right now? And we would just, with one little 
twitch of his pinky, we could all be prostrate before him saying we praise you. But what is he doing? He's saying, here's my gospel. I came and I died for you. I knew your sin better than you knew your sin. And do you understand, when you, under, when you get that, that should put us all on the floor. That's the power that should sink us to our knee. He chose not to come down with a sword, but with a lamb. Read the book of Revelation, it makes no sense. There's all this talk about wars and demons and dragons and uh, And then at the centrality, at the whole book, you've got this what? This scary, stronger angel of God who whips everybody and... You've got a lamb. What? God wins this cosmic, ridiculous, crazy, scary war with a lamb? And how does He do it? It's a lamb who is willing to be slain for the sins of the world. Friends, we're not going to win sinners by condemning them and screaming at them. Do you want to know the thing that, that really concerns me in my day? The real issue, at forefront, bubbling up right now between the church and the cultures is the, the, the issue of homosexuality. And here's what scares me. The church, all we've done is preached against homosexuality. And yet we've loved not the homosexual community. We don't do that with any other sin. When I stand up here and I say, God hates gossip, do we isolate the gossipers out in the hallway and say, no, whoop, I mean, that, you, you've got a lifestyle of gossip. You can't... I mean, seriously. And yet we hold up one sin over all the others. Why? Because maybe we don't struggle with it. But you know there are people in here that do. And you know why you don't know that? Because they don't feel the freedom to tell you. Because they feel like they're going to be lynched and thrown out. And so how are they supposed to deal with sin alone? How can you do You can't deal with your sin alone. Do you see that the gospel is the only power? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. That means your pastors. That means your elders. That means you. That means all of us. We are a mess. And the only one that we can exalt in this place is Jesus. And there is no other person to exalt. And so what scares me is that when you throw rocks, bigger rocks are coming back. And maybe the church is going to be persecuted over this, but you know what? We deserve it. We deserve it. Because we've not used the methodology of the gospel. And we've not acted like a people who understand grace, but we've acted like the world and we're worse than the world. The thing that blew me away reading this book by Perkins, Let Justice Roll Down, was the whole reality that he talks about that the the strongest, worst, most evil prejudice that he encountered was from the hands of people that claimed to be Christians. Where was the church? Where's the church right now? Where are we? Well, what can change it? Dr. Perkins writes something that 
I've got, I do have a category for it. It's called the gospel. It's the only category I have for it. This is what he said. Oh, I know man is bad and depraved. There's something built into him that makes him want to be superior. You see that in yourself? Man, I do. If the black man, listen to this. I'm just reading it. If the black man had the advantage, he would be just as bad. And he says it again, just as bad. So I can't hate the white man. Folks, that's Bible and that's gospel right there. The problem is spiritual. Black or white, we all need to be born again. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me on that bed full of bruises and stitches. God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with the love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again. Stronger, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. Dear friends, may it happen to the church. May it happen to the church. Chris talked to us about revenge. I'm leaving it to God. The last thing, really quickly. Um, lastly, we want to see, we want you to see that the gospel leaves payback in the hands of God. The gospel leaves payback in the hands of God. Paul says in verse 19, you can look at that with me. He says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The idea behind that word leave there in verse 19 is to give or to appoint. It is an imperative and Paul is essentially commanding believers in Jesus to let it go. To let it go. See, our natural proclivity is to pay back those that have wronged us. And Paul is actually commanding us in in the, the very opposite direction. He's saying, Christians... The battle is not yours, but it belongs to the Lord. Paul says, Christians, the best way that you can get back at your enemies or those that have wronged you is to take them to Gus's and fill their tables. It's to fill their cups with, with, with sweet tea so that they can quench their thirst. And this is foreign to me. You know, I, I got to be honest, um, I'm extremely, it's been my struggle. When somebody wrongs me, I can easily just wipe my hands with them and walk away and not think twice about it. But Paul is saying, you know what, don't harbor bitterness. He's saying, leave it to God. Leave it to Him. And the reality is, in order for us to do this the right way, what does this take? It takes trust. It takes trust that the Lord is big enough and powerful enough to handle our enemies. To deal with what we ought to leave to Him to deal with. It takes us trusting Him. What's interesting is that Paul is working from the assumption that believers in Jesus, get this, will have enemies. Will have enemies. Paul's essentially saying, you will have enemies. When you come to know Jesus Christ, you are not um, in this kind of protective silo from any bad thing happening to you. You will have enemies. They're going to be there. 
There's going to be people against you. Yet it's not the presence of the enemies that set us apart. It is how we deal with those enemies in the aftermath that set us apart. When Paul says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He gets this from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 through 36. Look at this with me. It says this, vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when the foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining. Paul pulls this passage from the Old Testament and he proclaims two messages. That God is in control and that He will take care of those He loves. That God is ultimately in control and He will care for those that are His people. If you name the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have nothing to worry about. And what marks the believer in Jesus Christ is that they have the gift of giving over those issues with enemies and those that are against them. They have the gift of giving it over to Jesus. That's what marks the believer. See, Jesus was the ultimate example of this. Here he was an innocent man. He was deemed guilty. He was put on a a cross that was not even His. And He was crucified. And our sin laid upon Him. And you know, the, the words that Jesus mustered up out of His mouth was, Father, forgive them. They have no clue what they're doing. Father, forgive them because they they don't know what they're doing. He depended upon His Father. He trusted God to handle that which He decided not to handle. Even in the face of His enemies, those spitting on Him and mocking Him, Jesus mustered up the words, Father, forgive them because they have no clue what they're doing. Let me preface this by saying I had something else in this spot, what I'm about to tell you, but I just felt led to, to use this piece. Um, so Donald Sterling, uh, the, the owner of the L.A. Clippers, and you guys probably saw this in the news the last couple of days, the news broke that Donald Sterling is an extreme racist. Um, he's the owner, uh, he's probably 81 years old, um, he owns property, but he also owns the L.A. Clippers. And Donald Sterling, um, it was recorded, a, a conversation of, with him talking to his girlfriend was recorded. And he was upset at her uh, because she had taken pictures on Instagram with black people. Uh, and he called her up, and, and he's essentially challenging her and saying... I don't care what you do in private with them as long as you don't as long as you're not seen in public with them. And he's over and over again um, going at her. Why do you have to be walking around in public with them? She was seen on the photo, uh, she took a picture with Magic Johnson. And she said, I don't care he, Donald Sterling said to her, I don't care what you what you do with them. I don't care what you do to him. Don't be seen in public with them and don't bring them to my games. Crazy stuff. And you know what? I got to tell you that I'm really not surprised. Honestly, I'm just not... I'm not surprised. 
Because the reality is, discrimination laws cannot govern the heart. They can't. They can't change a person's heart. Magic Johnson was interviewed and um, he, he spoke about his friends, the coach of the L.A. Clippers, Doc Rivers. And he spoke about a good friend of his, the, uh, the point guard of the Clippers, Chris Paul. And um, he said, you know what, I'll say about them, those are my friends, I love them. Uh, and I don't want them to deal with this. I want them to know they have a job to do, they ought to do their job, and they ought to let me handle it. Let me handle it. A guy who talked poorly about him in Donald Sterling, and the guy who was verbally assaulted in a sense, and demeaned by this, by this uh, L.A. Clippers owner, his words were, to his friends that are employees of that team, his words were, let me handle it. Let me handle it. And I think the message in our text, God will say to us as we face our enemies, because Paul says we will have them, is let me handle it. You don't have to face them at all. Trust me, believe me when you face your enemies. God will say to you this morning, let me handle it. Let me handle it. And all of these things that we see in this text this morning, I want you to know that we are not doing these things. We're not loving one another. We are not um, loving our enemies. We're not doing any any of these things for God's acceptance, but we are doing them from God's acceptance. And what Paul wants us to understand is that this is for believers in Jesus Christ. This is how they ought to walk out life. And they're not doing it to gain God's acceptance, but they're doing it because they have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. I want you to know, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, you can do that today. You can do business with Him today. You can trust in the reality that Jesus lived a perfect life, that He died a gruesome death, that He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and that He rose again on the third day. He did that because He loved us. And do you know that Jesus calls us to love because He first loved us? We have a responsibility to love because Jesus loved us first. Every eye closed and every head bowed. I want you to just take 30 seconds to do business with God. And if you are here and you haven't recognized Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, I'm not going to call you up front. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I want to ask you to do business with God right there in your seat. Would you tell Him that you are sinful? That you, you want to trust Him as Lord and Savior of your life. Jesus says, I'm calling you to love others. I'm calling you to love your enemies. Why? Because I've loved you first. Father, thank You. Thank You that You took the first step toward us. Thank you, Father, that you pursued us by sending your Son, Jesus. 
You loved us. So much so that you gave up your only son. And thank you, Jesus, that you are obedient to death. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave up your life. That you were buried, but you did not stay there. You rose again on the third day. I pray we would trust in those realities. Father, also pray that you would bless these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings that we're about to receive. Lord, may you use them for your kingdom. That people may come to know you to be the one true and living God. In Jesus' name. Amen.